Hi, I'm George Pascoe-Watson, the UK Chairman of Portland Communications, and I've been talking to Athel Duncan, one of Britain's leading executive coaches, about how the pandemic has impacted boardrooms and bosses around the world. Athel spent much of the year talking to chief executives, 28 in all, to write an incredible book, Leaders in Lockdown, and we've examined today how leaders lead in a crisis. Can any good come of what we've just experienced? and how the world of work will change. This is To The Point. Athel, welcome. I just want to start really with your reflections overall from the experience that you had talking to such a distinguished set of individuals. Well, I think I got a remarkable insight, George. Most of these people were hunkered down in their kitchens around the world and they were very willing to talk. In fact, it was almost like many of them had seen a car crash and many of their businesses were going through a car crash and they wanted uh, as almost a therapy to share their experience and to tell someone what they'd been through and to try and make sense of, you know, that most overused word of the crisis, this unprecedented period of time that we'd been through. And one of the people you spoke to really said that this could be the end of the culture of the Superman leader. Tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, Lena Nair, who is the chief HR officer at Unilever, um, she was dealing with 100,000 employees in 100 countries around the world. She reflected that uh, in every country was dealing with this differently. So that although that uh, many people were um, on the same storm, uh, we were very much on different boats. Um, and her uh, reflection, her advice to her leaders in Unilever was to be empathetic leaders. And she felt that this was the end of the era of the Superman leader. Um, and she did mean the Superman leader. And this was the start of a, a more empathetic uh, and caring type of leadership, a more delegated type of leadership, uh, where command and control didn't really work in this crisis because of the nature of it. So I think that's a fascinating thing to take forward. And many of these 28 leaders did come to the conclusion that we will have to reinvent various aspects of leadership uh, as we come out of the COVID crisis. Now, a, a sceptic would say, well, you know, she would say that at the height or peak of this pandemic. But, you know, in the end, results is results is results. And you've got shareholders demanding return on their investment. And you do need leaders to be driven and to drive uh, and the empathy and compassion and being inclusive that she talked about could easily fall by the wayside when we get back to whatever normal looks like. Well, you do, but you also need businesses uh, with purpose, don't you? And then Unilever has been uh, one of those corporations that, you know, through Paul Pullman, who some people would see as the, the father of purpose, has really championed and now, you know, profited. I think they became the largest company in the in the FTSE 100 at, at one stage during the crisis. And that was a theme that a lot of the leaders came back to. Was this the moment that 
purpose became something much uh, more important than a line or two to emblazon on your website and forget about it. It was this the moment where purpose really had to be proven through action and not words. And uh, I think that was very much echoed by Nipur Malik, who's the chief HR officer at Tata, and the work that Tata did, particularly in their home country of, of India, in many, many ways to, to help the nation fight the crisis. And incidentally, you know, if you want some staggering numbers from the crisis, Tata moved 600,000 people to home working, 600,000 people in a very short period of time. And it's their intention that probably only about 25% of them will ever go back full time to the office. One of your uh, interviewees, Marion Saltzman, made a very interesting point. I asked the question, when, when Crocs give away 10,000 free pairs to healthcare workers, is that philanthropy? Is it product placement? Or is it a big thank you to their huge customer base? Well, I think it's all of them, isn't it? And if you lead it with purpose first you put purpose at the heart of it, then you get the benefits that uh, in more normal times would accrue um, from all the other matters of product placement or or brand building. Um, Mm. But, uh, you know, one of the leaders said to me that this was a moment where it felt like purpose was on steroids. It will be interesting to see um, how long that lasts. Uh, You know, we as we go back to a more normal kind of time, because we have been saying for years that the consumer would vote with their wallet and would favour the purpose-led and the organisations that put climate first. This is certainly one of the main theories coming out of the leaders in lockdown, that purpose will now be more important than it's ever been. And uh, that hackneyed old phrase, only time will tell. Well, absolutely. Now, one of the other real standout features, I think, of the book, uh, Athel, was about being a leader at this time and the stretch and challenge that gives you as an individual. And Mark Thompson, um, for British audience here, will remember Mark's days uh, running the BBC, but he, of course, now runs the New York Times, been over in the US for six or seven years now. He was saying a couple of things, A, about the workplace, which I, I know you've got a funny an- anecdote about, but also on a more serious point, making big bets with incomplete facts. You have to make a decision, but you don't know how things are going to go. And of course, that is the challenge facing the political leaders. What, what's it like uh, from Mark's perspective? Well, Mark had a couple of uh, very Mark Thompson-like stories from people who know him from the past. And Absolutely. He felt that in terms of leadership in the crisis, there were two things. One was that you needed to have people around about you who had been through major crises before. And if you think about Mark's time at the BBC, it may have all blended into to one crisis uh, for much of his time there. So he felt it was very important to have people who'd been there and done it, like the captains who'd been on the deck of the ship during the storm. That gave confidence to particularly younger people who had not experienced maybe the previous financial crisis or had not experienced the Twin Towers. And this gave them confidence that they would get through it. And the the other anecdote they told me, which I loved, was that Mark likes his Brompton fold-up bicycle. 
and he had to go into the New York Times offices off Times Square um, to do an earnings call. And there was none of his 5,000 employees there apart from a handful of folk who needed to do this call. So he cycled round the vast savannas <laughs> of the New York Times offices on his Brompton bicycle. And he said it was bizarre to see what he described as being like an empty milking parlour where thousands of employees <laughs> came in and plugged themselves into these workstations. And that was the moment where he asked himself, should I sell my skyscraper? And he concluded that actually he shouldn't sell his skyscraper, but he needed to completely rethink the relationship between the office and his creative workforce. Now, he also talked, as did many of your leaders, about the personal the burnout, the fatigue, reimagining how you spend your working days got to be critical for a leader. We do need our leaders to be on peak performance. And uh, what, what, what can you share with us about that? Well, I mean, another major theme of the, of the crisis has obviously been uh, the mental welfare and the physical welfare of employees. I spoke to the chief executive of Whoop, Now, Whoop is a wearable health tech and it tracks your the strain on your body. It tracks your heart 24 hours a day. And Will Hamid is of the view that executives must now pay much more attention to the physical and mental preparation. So as he puts it, if you were coming up to an earnings call or a very important negotiation, you should prepare yourself like an Olympian would for the Olympics. And he he doesn't mean lift weights and uh, run up and down hills, but he does mean get yourself in the right physical and mental state so that you can make the best decisions and perform at the peak. And, And I see now, particularly one year on, George, that a lot of executives are using quite different uh, techniques to keep themselves centred, to give them time to reflect, take a pause, take a breath. More people doing meditation, certainly more people turning to executive coaches so that they have a sounding board and more people trying to work breaks into their day so that we're not suffering from Zoom fatigue through, you know, complete back-to-back from seven in the morning till seven at night. So I think that theme will continue afterwards. I think we're, we're becoming much more aware that a lot of what we did before is actually shortening our lives and killing us as executives. Some people might call that a slacker's charter, Athel. Well, um, it would be a slacker's charter um, if the results were less But I think the evidence is in showing that if you're in the Olympic state of mind in terms of your preparation, the results are better and the decisions which you make are of a higher quality, as well as allowing you to maintain the right mental and physical welfare for yourself and for your colleagues. And and one of the big issues that leaders have had to deal with specifically, is around the complexity now of the supply chain. This COVID pandemic has exposed the complexity and length of supply chains for so many sectors, and it's made it 
really exposed to the point that people are now discussing and looking at reshoring and uh, more of a nationalistic sort of presence. What, what can you share with us about that? Well, I mean, the the global order in the supply chain um, really ground to a halt, didn't it? Uh, when borders closed. And it wasn't just that we had to get PPE from China or Turkey, or we, you know, we realised that um, we no longer made the stuff uh, in the UK that we needed um, to fight this crisis. It was right across the the supply chain. And one of the people, uh, the leaders that I chatted to was uh, a CEO called Christian Lang, who's the chief exec of TradeShift, which is a tech company in Silicon Valley, founded by three Danes uh, in a garage and is now a unicorn in Silicon Valley and trying to take procurement, trying to take the supply chain online. He thought that um, when the crisis happened that the phone wouldn't ring for many months and there would be no sales. But actually what people discovered was that um, they needed digital and digital procurement uh, more than ever before. And he described it as having revealed that all we'd done in the last 20 years was put a bit of uh, digital dust on top of analogue businesses. So he would see us very much as totally uh, reinventing the supply chain. And I think moving away from just-in-time Because for 20, 30, 40 years, we've made supply chain decisions based on cost. And now when the big geopolitical factors came in, it all ground to a halt. And I think for something like the iPhone, I think uh, it relies on people manufacturing things in about 60 countries around the world. So these supply chains have got massively complex. And it's it's one of the big things that um, risk people. It's it's funny how... um, these crises make jobs which were previously less glamorous uh, more glamorous. And the procurement people and the supply chain people are now going to be extremely valuable and sought after, I think, in most businesses. And of course, the possibilities here are in some ways predictable, but in other ways totally unpredictable about how economies will really open up for reshoring, and for uh, a domestic supply uh, so that this sort of thing can never happen again to a, to a business. But at the same time, I wanted to examine the pace of change, Athel, because the pace of change in this pandemic has shown that what was previously unthinkable and impossible has now become the art of the possible and thinkable and doable. We see that in particularly in pharmaceuticals where the vaccine came forward within months rather than years. We saw field hospitals being set up here in the UK, uh, new revenue streams. Where did that conversation take you? Well, we actually had a client uh, who came to us recently with that very question and said, how can we recreate the pace of change and the mindset of change that made the impossible possible? at the height of the crisis. And and when we've discussed this, I've got two thoughts about it. One is we might um, kill ourselves if we try to maintain that pace of change. But the second thing is there is definitely something about mindset, wasn't there? When And we were driven by necessity. We were driven by the near or the potential near-death experiences of our businesses. And that made us think in an entirely different way. And I think what, what you're seeing really is uh, a point that a number of leaders made is we didn't see any new trends emerging in the crisis. 
all we saw was a massive acceleration of the trends that were already there. Uh, and I think there's a view that we've really moved a lot of sectors, a lot of consumer behaviours, a lot of personal behaviours have moved forward probably 10 years in a summer. So the businesses have got, or markets have got to 2030 in a matter of uh, months. And a friend of mine who's an academic actually thought that uh, in the way that we took education online, that we probably move forward 20 or 30 years. The, the old profs and the old academics, it would have taken them 20 or 30 years to get to that level of online education. Which is a fantastic leap forward. Where there may not be a leap forward, and I'd love your views on this or the views of your interviewees, are we going back to office life? We're never going back to office life as it was. That's, that's for sure. I think the consensus is that there will be a hybrid and if you take Unilever, for instance, Lena Nair there was speculating that we might go to our offices for two or three days a week. You know, so there will be this hybrid. But we have to remember that we're missing out on an awful lot through just living in this virtual world. I mean, where does creativity take place in groups in the virtual space, it's never going to be as effective as brainstorming in a room with a, a bunch of uh, clever and trusty people. Where do relationships get built? Where does trust get built? Where is the social aspect of the workplace? Where are those conversations that would normally take place in the cafe or around the work cooler? So we're going to create a hybrid, aren't we? Um, the other element in that that I thought was fascinating, I spoke to George Hongchoi, who's the chief exec of Link Asset Management uh, in Hong Kong. They're a large owner of uh, offices and, and shopping malls in China and Hong Kong. And his view was that it might be in the long term the death of the central business district. And what we might be far better suited to do is to create a kind of hub and spoke system where if we've got a lot of employees who are, say, in the the Thames Valley area or in the Reading area, that um, there is a workspace for the big bank there where you meet your colleagues and you touch down and uh, you share that creativity and you meet clients face to face. But in the long term, it might be the end of the dreadful and awful and uh, death-inducing commute quite what that means for our city centres and, uh, you know, the reinvention of our city centres. Huge, huge issues in that. And I think this is this is probably the, the issue that's been most talked about because, um, you know, it's the one that uh, has been most obvious to all of us, I think. And people are genuinely worried about that. There are obvious questions to which there may not be obvious answers. Yeah. That doubt is never a good thing for a chief executive. Nobody likes doubt, they like certainty. They well, <laughs> I always think that's a bit of a a kind of mistruth of business people, isn't it? Saying we always like certainty because we never have certainty. We all we can have is less uncertainty, isn't it? Um, I do also detect though, George, that there is probably quite a different geographical take on the office. Go on. You know, I think in Asia it's much more likely, and indeed, if you look at Hong Kong it's much more likely that people will be back to office life. They never went completely um, virtual like we have. And I think in the 
in the US as well. You know, I'm chatting to some of my friends in the US. They they are not locked down in in the way that we are locked mm. down in the UK. So I think you could mm. see uh, big regional differences. And I get the impression that the UK is at the uh, so one of the extremities of um, how virtual and home working we are. Mm. In these fascinating interviews, Athol, you must have had some standout uh, reflections, somebody who really captured the essence of this last year from a leader's perspective. Who would you single out? Well, they, they were all hugely impressive and, uh, you know, they proved to me why they're in the leadership positions that they are. But two in particular, Sir David Behan, who um, was, during most of the crisis, executive chairman of HC1 Care Homes, which is the largest care home company in the UK. Now, in the first 100 days when I was talking to him, the first 100 days of lockdown, they had a 1,000 residents died in their care homes, including several of their staff. You know, so dealing with that as a leader puts it on a completely different page uh, than the financial and operational issues that many of the rest of us were dealing with. He also had 60 different sets of government guidelines about COVID as we learnt more about the virus as time went on and had to implement that across several hundred care homes. Uh, And I, I was truly humbled, actually, by his tribute to leadership at every level in that business, in in the the toughest of circumstances. And the other person was at the opposite end of her career, Pocket Sun, a 28-year-old venture capitalist in Singapore, who, and this is really deep thinking for us who are at the supposedly wiser end of our careers. Her question was, it makes you think, what is work? And what have we been put on this mm. earth to do? Mm. And is it this which we did before? And I think her, many people who are her generation who are at the end of that career will be asking, what is work? And is this really what we've been put on earth to do? And as leaders, whether you're in the HR community or whether you're in the C-suite, we've got to reflect on that because it's a completely, we may be facing a completely different way of engaging our employees in the future. Your book, Leaders in Lockdown, has so much more in it, but just as a final reference to it, you come up with the seven key themes from the crisis, uh, the new age of purpose, the new world of work, tackling inequality, global cooperation, resilience, resetting the supply chain, and finally maximising potential. In all of the commentary, obviously very sad, very tragic, very worrying, but is there a, an upside? Is there a, a, a sense of optimism that you see? The upside is how the business community managed, this is a, a word which I hate using, but managed to pivot in so many ways. And as Sir David Bean said, the heroes uh, at every level. But, you know, coming out of it, we have to use this as an opportunity to reset the way we do business and to reset society. Because what COVID has taught us is that the way we were working and living before is not fit for the future. Athel, thank you very much for joining us on the Portland podcast. One of the questions we ask all our guests, and it's such an important question, is 
how do each one of us find a little me time, a little space to contemplate, to reflect, to make sure that we're on our top game away from all the madness? Now, I know you live in one of the most beautiful parts of the United Kingdom up there on the east coast of, of Scotland on golfing heaven. Um, but seriously, where, where, do you, where do you spend your time? Where's your little me space? Well, yeah, I mean, I work mainly in the city of London, but as you say, I live in a place called North Berwick and I walk out from the house here um, across the West Links, takes me about two minutes and I'm on the dunes overlooking an island called Fidra. And uh, those of you who know your literature uh, will know that Robert Louis Stevenson used Fidra as his inspiration for Treasure Island. And I sit up in the dunes there, particularly early in the morning. And that was where I sat when I came up with the idea to do this book. And uh, all around me, George, you know, that view has not changed in hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it tells us that we're only on this planet for a pretty short space of time. So we better use the time uh, usefully. And we will. Athel, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes on topics ranging from healthcare to leadership, which we'll be releasing over the coming weeks.